So do you remember that scene in Toy Story 2 where Jesse and Woody are talking and Woody's telling Jesse about his kid Andy. And then Jesse says, you know, I had a kid too. And in classic Disney form, the music starts playing, the flashback video rolls, and you see Emily and Jesse playing together. And though she knows she's just a toy, when Jesse and Emily are playing together, it's like she's alive. And in the background, you hear Sarah McLaughlin singing, When somebody loved me, everything was beautiful. But then the video keeps on playing and Emily grows up and she grows out of uh, playing with dolls and you see you know, makeup on the floor, you see the posters of, of, of the Jesse and Woody uh, toys fade away for like Bop magazine and things like that. And Jesse becomes a forgotten memory underneath her bed. And you can just see Jesse dying inside as she's underneath the bed, forgotten, as Emily grows up and is playing with friends. And as the flashback fades and the scene pans back to Jesse and Woody, she says this You never forget kids like Emily and Andy, but they forget you. You see, for a toy, the greatest fear is being forgotten by your kid. And I think one of the reasons why we so deeply connect with the Toy Story movies is that they found a way to tap in to some of our greatest hopes and into some of our greatest fears because deep down we share the same fear as toys, being forgotten by the one who matters most. I wonder this morning, have you ever felt like God has forgotten about you? It's a painful and lonely place. And maybe theologically you might believe that God is all-seeing, God is all-hearing, God is all-loving. And so it's theologically impossible for a God like that to forget anything, let alone you. But your everyday experience of life seems to suggest otherwise. You see... There's this weird paradox with humans. We can be convinced of something theologically, but it's another thing to be convinced of something deep down into the very core and depths of our soul. Though God sees all, you wonder, does God see me and my situation? Though God hears all and knows all, you wonder, does God hear me and my prayers? Though God is all-loving, you wonder, does God care about me and what I'm going through? So what do you do when you feel unseen, unheard, and unnoticed by God? I think if we're honest, all of us have wrestled with the painful loneliness that comes by feeling forgotten by God. This morning, as we continue our journey Chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the book of Genesis, we come face to face with two women who feel unheard, unseen, and unnoticed by God. They feel abandoned and forgotten. And although they share the same painful loneliness, we're going to find that they respond to their circumstance and their feelings in two very different ways. One woman will respond by taking matters into her own hands, 
and the other responds by trusting in the Lord. One says, listen, God has forgotten me, and so it all depends on me. The other says, I will trust in the Lord because it all depends on God. And my hope is as we walk out of the Boys and Girls Club this morning, as as we finish Genesis 16, is that when you feel forgotten, you will believe that God can be trusted because he sees, he hears, and he cares for you. And so to get to that truth, we're going to break down the story into two movements. First, we're going to see what happens when we take matters into our own hands. This is a path of self-reliance, self-determination, where we believe the subtle lie that God doesn't see, he doesn't hear, he doesn't care about me. And disaster strikes when we take matters into our own hands. And in the second movement, we'll see what happens when we trust in the Lord. This is a path of faithful dependence on God. No matter the circumstances, no matter what our eyes see, we believe and the character and nature of God that he sees us, he hears us, and he does care about us. So let's start together in verse 1 to see what happens when we take matters into our own hands. Verse 1 says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram as her husband, gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. So Moses is telling us that it's been 10 years since Abram first heard the promises of God. See, when God first met Abram, he was about 75 years old and he had given up on the dream of becoming a father. He figured if it was going to happen, it would happen by now. And he'd come to terms with it. But then into his despair, God spoke a, a, a promise of hope. Do you remember those promises? We've looked at them already in Genesis 12 and 15. He told Abram, Abram, I will make of you a great nation. To your offspring, I'll give this land. He even tells him, your very own son shall be your heir. He took him on a walk outside at night. And he said, look at the stars in the sky. If you can number them, so shall your offspring be. And we're told that Abram dared against hope. He believed the Lord. He believed the promises of God and God counted it to him as righteousness. But now 10 years, a whole decade has passed. And verse 1 painfully reminds us that Sarai had borne Abram no children. Now it's easy when we're reading the Bible to read verses like that and just move on to the next verse. But I want us to linger here for a moment. Sarai had borne Abram no children. Hope deferred, the Proverbs remind us, makes the heart sick. Can you imagine? I just want us to put ourselves in Sarai's position for a moment. Imagine the mix of emotions. The joy when Abram came to her and said, God has met me and he's told me we are going to have a child. 
hope started to bubble up inside of her for the, the, the promise of being a mother. You can also imagine skepticism coming right alongside that hope that this sounded too good to be true. You can see, almost imagine her wrestling with the notion that God would, would, would finally, after so many years, hear and answer her prayer to grant to her the gift of motherhood. But then one year passes. Another year passes. And the years start to pile up. And with each passing year, it begins to eat away at the hope that she will ever have a child. And she's become convinced that God has abandoned and forgotten her. Friends, how long can you pray without answer and still believe that God sees you, that God hears you, and that he cares? You can hear the bitterness and her commentary on her circumstances. Remember what she said? The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. And on the one hand, it's theologically true. No one has ever become pregnant apart from God giving life because all of life is given from him. We can't generate life on our own. It's God who gives life. It's a gift. But on the other hand, there's this subtle underlying indictment about the character of God. In other words, she's saying, God is taking too long. God is withholding from me. God will not give me a child. Therefore, I must take matters into my own hands. And so it's in that place that Sarai comes up with this workaround plan to deal with her barrenness. And I don't know about you, but I can sympathize with her. It's not like she's completely abandoned the faith. She didn't leave the promised land. She didn't explicitly reject God. But there's... But, but, but see the subtlety of how we can easily begin to drift away from this path of faith. Incrementally, we start believing lies about God's character. God doesn't see me. God doesn't hear me. God certainly doesn't care. And so I've got to act. I've got to uh, manipulate the circumstances and take matters into my own hands. There's that subtle lie that believes God helps those who help themselves so she comes up with this plan and she brings it to abram and abram passively goes along with it and friends i want to submit to you that this plan should have never happened at the moment that she brought it to abram abram should have lovingly said no we can't do that he should have comforted sarai in her doubt and pain he should have been a loving husband a shepherd tender hearing her fears Hearing the pain, he should have led her to the Lord. But instead, he passively abdicates his role as the spiritual leader and head of his home. Now let me be really clear. There's a lot of confusion in our day about what spiritual headship means. It doesn't mean that men should never listen to their wives. Husbands, if you leave with nothing else today, leave with this. Often the best thing you can do is listen to your wives. We need to be humble and listen to our wives. Often it's they who lead us away from paths of foolishness and sin. Everyone, listen. God has given to each other, husbands and wives, to one another, so that we could listen to one another and uh, uh, benefit from one another and propel one another to the Lord. We each bring, men and women, 
unique perspectives that complement and actually complete our one flesh union. It's what makes marriage so beautiful. And we do the concept of spiritual headship a great disservice if we reduce it just to, well, who gets the last word? When you do that, you're, you're reducing it and not seeing the fullness of it. That would be like re- uh, reducing all of leadership down to who gets to call the shots. But we all know leadership is much more than that. Spiritual headship is not primarily and only about authority and hierarchy. It's really about responsibility and care. And here we see Abram fail to lovingly shepherd his wife in a moment of weakness. See, Sarai feels the sting of barrenness. She fears that the promises of God are faltering because of her. And when she brought that plan to him, Abram should have lovingly, patiently, tenderly rejected this plan. He should have led his wife to the Lord, but he doesn't. Instead, this plan moves forward. Sarai takes the Egyptian servant Hagar and he gives her to Abram as a second-tier wife to see if perhaps she will bear a child with Abram. Now here's what you need to know. In the area that they live, remember they're in the promised land, but it's being occupied by surrounding pagan nation states. And this was a very common practice during this time. See, if you were barren, you could give your female servant to your husband with the hopes of maybe producing an heir through this other uh, woman And these children produced in this second additional marriage would be the property and the heirs of the primary family. Legally, if if Hagar produces a child, this child would be Abram and Sarah's. And it was common practice in this time. But make no mistake, though it was a common practice, this is not condoned by God. We learn in Genesis 2 that monogamy is God's preferred path. And if you look at every single story in the Bible where you see polygamy, you will find it always ends in disaster. There's never polygamous relationships that end in harmony. But just because something is socially acceptable doesn't make it right in God's economy. And the way way, um, stories work is often the narrator doesn't come out and explicitly condemn these kinds of plans. But the way that it's written about shows you that God does not condone what's going on. And the way that Genesis 16 is written shows God's disapproval of this plan. This plan is a failure of faith. And it ends with sexual exploitation, conflict, and pain. Abram and Sarai are abusing their power and authority over Hagar. Do you see how they treated her like a piece of property? Take her and give her as if she's something to be taken and given? We don't see them ask her permission? Hagar is simply a means to their ends, not a person created in the image of God with feelings and thoughts. This is textbook sexual injustice plain and simple she doesn't have an alternate choice she doesn't have a voice and she is being sinned against greatly 
So how do we know that this plan isn't con- uh, uh, that this plan is condemned by God? Well, first look at the language that's being used. I don't know if you notice this or not, but Genesis 16 is written very similarly to Genesis 3, where we see the fall of humanity. It's another example of the downward spiral of sin. So in Genesis 3, you remember we hear that Adam listened to the voice of his wife and that Eve took the fruit and she gave it to her husband. Those phrases, listened to her husband, took and gave, there are exact Hebrew matches here in Genesis 16. In this chapter, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And Sarai took Hagar and gave her to her husband. Those words, listened, took, and gave, are exact Hebrew matches. And it's written in the exact same way as Genesis 3. It's a parallel to show another mark of failure of faith. But not only that, this marks another example of faltering faith that happens when God's people look to Egypt for provision instead of God's promised land. The first readers who started uh, uh, reading this would have heard the Egyptian servant Sarai and be like, uh-oh, Egypt again. You remember in Genesis 12, Abram leaves the promised land because of famine and he seeks provision in Egypt. Do you remember how that shortcut ended in failure? In Genesis 13, Lot chooses to leave the promised land for a land described as what? A well-watered land like the land of Egypt. How does that end for Lot? Well, it ends in disaster. He gets taken captive, right? Now here in Genesis 16, Abram leaves the promised land of Sarai because of the famine of brokenness. And what does he do? He seeks provision in the Egyptian servant. This too is a failure of faith. This theme is being repeated. Do not leave the promised land for the provision of Egypt. Don't look to your circumstances and come up with your own plans. Stay faithful here. Rely on the Lord. Abram and Sarai should have sought the wisdom of God instead of coming up with their own plans and taking matters into their own hands. So let's see how this plan unfolds. Verse 4, And Abram went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you my servant to embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her. She fled from her. So they go forward with the plan. Abram takes Hagar. She becomes pregnant. So the plan worked, right? That was the whole point of the plan, that Hagar would become pregnant. They should be rejoicing, right? No. All is not well. The plan of unbelief leads to disaster in the home. And as the readers were looking like, well, obviously you just introduced another woman into this, into this marriage who now has another child. And it's like this Jerry Springer show, right? What could go wrong? Hagar's bitter. She's broken. Think about what's been done to her. 
So she looks at Sarai with contempt and scorn. Sarai takes offense that her servant is looking at her that way. And then what does she do? She blames the whole plan on Abram, even though it was her plan in the first place. It looks like the garden all over again. Everybody pointing the finger at everybody else. Then Abram fails a second time. Abram could have stepped up as the leader and said, enough of this. We went forward with this plan. We're going to make good on it, and we're not going to treat each other like this. He should have never allowed the plan to go in the first place, but now he should bring peace to his home. He should protect Hagar and this child from further abuse, but instead he's passive again. He let Sarai's pain and bitterness devolve into dealing harshly with Hagar. And if you look at what that Hebrew word for dealing harshly means, it is physical abuse. And so you have Sarai beating a pregnant woman, adding insult to injury. And what does Hagar do? She flees for her life and the life of the child. Again, another failure to bring their fear and pain to the Lord. And the result is conflict and pain. Everything about the way this is written is meant for us to look and see that when we take matters into our own hands, it ends in disaster and pain. And this is a great time for us to pause and ask when the waiting gets hard, when we want God to work on our timing, do we too take matters into our own hands? Are you tempted toward paths of immediate gratification, instant gratification, Instead of waiting on the Lord. Do you take the path of least resistance towards your plan? Do you look for the paths that are easy and comfortable instead of the path of faith? Or another way to say it is, do you look for uh, provisions from Egypt instead of waiting on the Lord in his promised land? Maybe you look around and you see lifestyles of your non-Christian friends and family. They seem to live without a care in the world. They seem to live carefree without the constraints of Christian ethics and holiness. And you're tempted to say, what if I were able to live like that? Or maybe at work, you see other people doing shady things to take shortcuts to get promoted in their career. Maybe it's the allure of being noticed by someone other than your spouse. Maybe it's overworking and staying away from the home so you don't have to deal with problems there. It could be anything that you look at and you say, this looks like it's offering me freedom and attraction from an alternate source. Ian Duguid writes this in his commentary. The pathway of compromise and sin never looks like a dark and forbidding portal. It always seems to offer life and freedom and meaning. And meaning. But Satan is a liar and Egypt is not your home. Sin never delivers on its promises. In the short run, it may seem like a good choice. But in the long run, it always leaves you empty and alone. Friends, often the path of faith is not the path of least resistance. In fact, usually the path of faith is the path that requires the most determination, steadfastness, and resilience. That's why Paul encourages Christians in 1 Corinthians 15 
Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I know waiting is difficult. I might be the least, impa- the least patient person in this room. It takes proactive faith to wait on the Lord. Waiting takes real work. It requires steadfastness and trust in the Lord that he will provide in his timing, in his ways. So maybe this morning you're in a place of waiting and you're weary, you're tired. There's the temptation to take these alternate paths, these shortcuts. So what do you do in times of waiting? Practically speaking, I want you to remember first to pray. When you find yourself in these moments, remember to pray. Take your weariness and your doubts to the Lord. Do what Abram and Sarai failed to do in prayer. The Lord is able to remind us that he is faithful. And there we're able to unburden our burdens and bring those doubts and fears to him. Second, at times of waiting, examine your desires with scripture. Scripture will help sift through if what you're desiring, if what you're waiting for is truly from God or not. Perhaps maybe the reason God isn't giving you that desire is because it's a sinful one. It's a wrong one. It's a disastrous one. Scripture will help clear that up. But maybe it's a good desire what you're waiting for and longing for. And Scripture will help you also to put that desire in its proper place. And not only that, when we regularly come to Scripture, Scripture will do us the great service of reminding us of the character of the Lord. That He is good and He gives good to his children according to his will and timing. And third, in seasons of waiting, I want you to seek wise counsel. If you find yourself in that place of waiting today, have you brought that desire and plan to other godly Christian friends to get their advice? See, God has given us the gift of community. We're not meant to live this life alone. In fact, we can't live this life alone. And godly counsel, when we bring these things to him, our friends who love us and want good for us are able to point out our spiritual blind spots to help us and encourage us to remain steadfast and faithful. Friends, remember, God is never in a hurry. He's never late. He works out his plans at just the right time. When all the preparations are made, when all the adjacent circumstances are perfectly in alignment, that's when God moves and brings about his perfect plan. The way of faith waits on the Lord to fulfill his promises instead of taking matters into our own hands. Now let's continue and see the second movement to see what happens when we trust in the Lord. Verse 7 The angel of the Lord found her, remember Hagar has fled, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said to Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. So Shur is on the way back to Egypt. So she's trying to go back to Egypt and she's pregnant and alone. And she stops to rest at a spring. And it's here that she meets 
this figure, the angel of the Lord. Now, this is the first time of about a dozen times in the Old Testament that we're going to meet this figure known as the angel of the Lord. Now, the angel of the Lord is different than other angels that we see in the Bible. In general, angels are these messengers from God who have a specific message or a specific mission from God. But this, the, the angel of the Lord is different. He speaks and acts as, as God himself. So here's one example you'll see in Exodus chapter 3. The angel of the Lord appeared to him, that's Moses, in a flame of fire out of the burning bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, who was it that called to him out of the bush? God called to him out of the bush. But it was the angel of the Lord in the bush, right? Exactly. The angel of the Lord is God. And he said, here I am. And then the angel of the Lord said, do not come near. Take your sandals off of your feet for the place in which you're standing is holy ground. The angel of the Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush and is called God. He's called Yahweh and the Lord. And the ground becomes holy. Why? Because God is there. And wherever God is, it's holy. Now we'll take the rest of the Old Testament to fully unpack who this angel of the Lord person is. But when you put together all the pieces of the puzzle, we find out that the angel of the Lord is God. And yet at the same time, he's distinct from God. It's God appearing, making himself visible and accessible to humanity for a specific purpose. Now think about that for a moment. God, yet distinct from God, making himself visible and accessible to humanity for a purpose. Anyone else in the Bible you can think of who is God, yet distinct from God, who appears making himself visible and accessible to humanity for a specific purpose? Yes, and his name is Jesus. God the Son, fully God, yet distinct from God the Father, who became human. Jesus is God himself, visible and accessible to humanity for a specific purpose. And so all throughout the Old Testament, we have these pre-incarnate, before he became flesh, uh, appearances of Christ. The, the God, the Son, coming and working in and among humanity for a specific purpose. And what's really cool is after the birth of Christ, you know who we don't see anymore in the Bible? The angel of the Lord. Because he's taken on flesh. The time of needing to come in this other manner is gone because now he has taken on flesh for all of time. We're going to link a video in the weekly sync from the Bible Project that does a good job in about four or five minutes unpacking who this uh, angel of the Lord figure is. But what you need to know right now is that Hagar is having a conversation with the angel of the Lord, who is God the Son, about 2,000 years before God the Son would take on flesh and dwell among us. Now, she doesn't know that. But what she does know at this point is that someone has found her. Seemingly out of nowhere, someone has found her at this spring, at this well. She's left Canaan in a hurry, She's tired and in distress. She's sitting by this spring, which is sort of like a natural well in the wilderness. And this person begins to speak to her. 
And he knows her name. She hasn't told him his name, but he knows her name. He knows that she belongs to Sarai. And he begins to ask her some questions. And she begins to open up and tell him that she is fleeing from her mistress, Sarai. Now look what happens next. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. and You shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Now he will be a wild donkey of a man. It's one of my favorite phrases in the whole Bible. His hand shall be against everyone. And everyone's hand against him. And he shall, call, he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So the angel of the Lord tells Hagar to return back to Abram and Sarai. And I don't know about you, but that sounds really harsh. Go back to the place where you were just beaten. Now on one hand God is sending her back to a difficult situation but on the other hand a a woman at this time uh, couldn't just go out into the the world and and, and make her own way and she's really in a vulnerable position and there's really not a whole lot of other places that she can go but hear me though God is sending her back to a difficult situation I don't take this specific story and try to pull out some general principle that all abused people should go back to their abusers because that would be a false way to read this chapter. There's something more nuanced going on. I think Jared Wilson is so helpful here. He says, the Lord's messenger tells her to go back and submit to Sarai. This should not be taken as a blanket endorsement for those abused or victimized to submit themselves to more abuse and victimization. Please don't read it that way. Too much damage has been done in the evangelical church in instructing victimized people to keep themselves in harm's way. But this specific instruction to this specific person has a general application for all people everywhere and it's this trust me so if you want to pull a general principle out of this it's this when God spoke to Hagar he's inviting her to trust him just so that we're clear at seven mile road when we hear of abuse when we hear of victims we do not harbor and protect abusers you know what we do we call the police When we hear of children being harmed, we call the proper and right authorities. We we do not want victims and the abused to go back into harmful situations. We don't presume to be God and speak to them on behalf of God. But I do want us to see that something is going on here. God is calling Hagar to go back to a hard and difficult situation. She has a difficult calling ahead of her. But that does not mean God is condoning the actions of Sarai and Abram. Their actions are sinful, as we already pointed out, and they will be judged and held accountable for it. Yet, what I want us to see is God entering into the story in a personal, visible, accessible, accessible and very merciful way. Did you see that the Lord does not send her back without compensation and without hope? He says, Hagar, trust me. I am writing 
your story. And though you can't see it now, you will be vindicated. You will have a son. You will have a heritage. God's ble- God blesses and promises Hagar something he promises to no other woman in the Bible. In fact, the blessing is so grand, it's not given to anyone else. It sounds a whole lot like his promise to Abram. He promises to make a great people out of her. And you realize he is giving this promise to a pagan slave from Egypt. These are supposed to be the enemies of God. She has no standing, no status. And God gives her a grand blessing. If that doesn't picture the gospel, then I don't know what does. The promises of God come to us as unbelieving slaves to sin. And yet, God in his mercy finds us in our distress and gives us the hope and promise of an inheritance beyond what any of us deserve. God comes to her in her distress and he says to Hagar, I hear you. I see you. I care about you. Hagar, you are not forgotten. You are not abandoned. I am with you. And here we learn something of God's character. That God cares for the weak. God cares for the weary. He cares for the wandering. And he tells her, your son's name will be Ishmael. Which means God hears. Ishmael. El is the Hebrew word for God. Shema means hear. Ishmael. God hears. Think about that. He sings, Hagar, every time you call Ishmael, every time you say his name, I want you to remember, God hears. God hears you. Don't ever forget, I hear you. A constant reminder. Now how does Hagar respond? So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar, we see, receives the word from the Lord with trust. She believes the Lord and she knows that she has been seen and heard. And she calls the angel of the Lord the God of seeing. Because truly in this place she has been seen. She even names the place, Bir Lahai Roy, the well of the living one who sees me. A woman at a well, between a rock and a hard place, who's met by the Lord with mercy, compassion, and blessing. Church, does that sound familiar? Doesn't this sound like another story you know from the Bible about a rejected woman at a well in a hard place? And do you remember who she met at the well? A man who knew her story, who did not reject her, who saw her and cared for her, who spoke straightforward and directly to her. And here we see God the Son meet Hagar, a woman in distress, at a natural water well with the same compassion and mercy that he would later offer the Samaritan woman at the well. It's beautiful. And in the same way that 
That woman at the well was never the same after her encounter with Jesus. Hagar is never the same after her encounter with Christ. Verse 15 tells us that Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So what does she do? She goes back. She goes back, and in time she gives birth to Ishmael. She tells Abram about her encounter at the well. Abram believed her, named his son Ishmael, which tells us that she received a hearing. She was heard. And I wish I could tell you that after that moment, everyone lives happily ever after. We'll see in the next couple chapters that there are hard days ahead for Hagar. She and Sarai never get along. Conflict will continue to boil between her son and Isaac. Literally generations will come and go for the next 3,500 years. And the sons of Ishmael and the sons of Isaac will continue to be at odds. Thus, why there's no peace in the Middle East. But again, God will meet Hagar in her distress. In a few chapters, she'll be kicked out to the curb again. And who will come and meet her again? God will not forget her. God will not abandon her. And so we have to ask, how, how is it that Hagar will be able to endure the hard days ahead for her? It's this. Because by faith she knows deep down in her soul that God sees her, that God hears her, and God cares for her. She knows that God has not abandoned her. She knows that God has not forgotten her. And this is why you hear Pastor Kevin and I say all the time, theology is not irrelevant. It's not inconsequential for everyday life. Because when you believe that God sees you and he hears you and he cares for you, when you believe that God will handle every situation, when you believe that your reward is in heaven, when you believe Deep in your soul that God can be trusted. You know what happens? You begin to worry less. You begin to strive for control less. You begin to stop manipulating all the circumstances and situations around you less. You trust in the character of God beyond what your eyes can see. Does it make pain painless? Of course not. Does it make hard things easy things? No. But it does turn your pain and it does transform those hard things into purposeful things. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians in chapter uh, 4 verse 16? He says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is what? Preparing for us an eternal way to glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but what? The unseen things are eternal. Friends, do not lose heart. No matter your situation, no matter your circumstance, our experience in this life. Paul says it's momentary and light when you put it up against the weight of eternity and glory. We can trust that God means to work out good for us no matter the circumstance because his word tells us so. But even more than that, if you're saying, but how can I know that I know that I know that God will work out good for my joy? 
How do I know that God will not forsake and abandon me? We can know that God sees and hears us because Christ was forsaken in our place. And a mystery we can't fully understand, when Jesus was crucified, moments before his death, as he cried out, as he neared his last breath, Matthew 27, 46 records these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus suffered and took on every penalty and punishment we deserve for sin, he experienced the hell of being forsaken and abandoned by God. And he went through it for us in our place so that you and I, by faith, would never have to experience it on our own. How can we know that we will never be abandoned and forsaken? Because Jesus was forsaken so we could be accepted. Jesus was forgotten so we will be remembered. So friends, when life and circumstances are hard, when all you can see is the pain around you, when you are weak and weary and find it hard to believe in the promises of God, remember God will never leave you or forsake you. His promises are sealed by his word and by the blood of his son. God sees you. God hears you. And God cares for you. Let's hold fast to this hope and pray.